in this episode with Tony Christensen. Look, what the losing my legs did for me is before the accident, I could have done 10,000 things with my life. I could have been a brain surgeon. I could have been an airline pilot. I could have been, uh, I, you know, anything in my life. Since the accident, I can do 8,000 things with my life. Now, my choice is to sit and dwell and think about the 2,000 things I'm never going to do or go out and do the 500, which are going to make my life great. And I woke up about six days later, and mum and dad were sitting at the end of the bed. And it was funny, because they had this really terrible itch in my foot. And I was going to scratch it. And then uh, my mum said, it's, uh, those legs weren't there anymore. That was the cards that I've been dealt, and uh, I've been very fortunate uh, from that day forward. Mum, even then, still blamed herself for letting me go that day. Let me go to the railway yards and this, this accident happened, you know. And I had to come up to her and I said, Mum, let it go. Mum, I'm okay. I've had an extraordinary life. And it's going to be even better. So, um, Tony, thank you for taking time out today uh, to come here uh, on the show and, and be interviewed. Um, I, I know that you've told your story uh, many, many, many times. I've, I've heard it before myself. It's, um, it's an amazing story. So I'll apologize for making you go through it again. But I, I think it's important that um, there are probably lots of people out there still who, who haven't heard your story and, and can learn from it. You know, one of the... Um, aspects of, of this show is it's all about wisdom worth sharing um, and I know from your many experiences you've had over your life there's a, there's a lot of wisdom in there and so it'd be great to, to draw some of that out whatever you prepare to share with us today so thank you for, for coming on um, what I'd what I'd maybe like to do is start off with actually just to set context was and this is off your website tonychristensen.com um, so before I get into asking a question I'm just going to list some of the things that um, that you that you do or you've done, um, you've achieved, just so, so that our listeners immediately get a bit of a context of the kind of person I'm sitting across from and talking to today. So, as I, as I said, I've heard your story. You're an inter, uh, international inspirational speaker, uh, motivational speaker. You're a successful businessman. You're a mo motor racing champion, world class athlete qualified pilot, best-selling author, martial artist, scuba diver, surf lifesaver, uh, you've conquered Kilimanjaro, you're the world's fastest amputee, you've been a city councillor, uh, representative community, and you're a snow skier. 
and all of those are amazing to do and to achieve, um, but even more so with no legs, which after a terrible accident you had as a child, um, left you in that situation, but you've gone on and achieved all of these things. And so today would be good. I don't know whether we'll be able to cover all of, <laughs> all of those things, um, but it would be good to talk about your life and what you've achieved and what it's taken to achieve those things, because I think there's probably lessons in there for all of us. You know, um, I'm a qualified lifeguard as well. You can see that in there. Um, no, we have to update, you, update your website. <laughs> I've also um, been driving the two-man bobsled. Is that right? Uh, yeah, my goal was to go to the, or is still to go to the Winter Paralympics, uh, driving the two-man bobsled. Uh, however, the bobsled isn't an international sport yet within the Par Winter Paralympics. So, right. Um, I'm starting to run out of time age-wise, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, it's still in the plan. Still awesome. in the plan. Awesome. So I had, I mean, I'm going off on a tangent already, so this is what happens. But so how do you keep yourself fit for that? You know, I mean, a bobsled is, we live in Tauranga, which for those who are not familiar with uh, um, Tauranga, is usually pretty hot um, and humid, not so much snow. Um, <laughs> so how do, you, how do you prepare for that? I'm, I'm a reasonably fit fit person, uh, pushing obviously a wheelchair around and and uh, I don't wear artificial limbs at all. So uh, I just get around on my hands and my backside basically uh, when I'm doing things. So I think my upper body strength has just worked. I'm, I work it every day. So uh, that in itself has not been too much of an issue. When I climb Kilimanjaro, for example, um, altitude sickness or, or hypoxia is a, is a huge thing because you're at 19,000 feet and you do that without oxygen. I think being a pilot and flying airplanes and um, constantly flying up around six, seven, eight thousand feet, you're in that thinner air atmosphere, and um, you tend to just have a bigger breath. I think, and uh, I think that helped me with Kilimanjaro, and I think it helps me with most of the things that I do in life. Uh, motor racing is again something that you're under a huge amount of stress for, uh, you know, ten, fifteen minutes, or if you're doing some of the endurance races, you're you're like that for an hour. And so it's good to have um, uh, that upper body uh, fitness. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe we'll come to that as part of your your journey from um, early in life. To talk about that. I've got questions about that personally. But you know the uh, upper body strength. Um, so we'll come to that if that's all right. But sure. if if we can then, um, we'll, we'll start at the beginning. You know, the once upon a time sort of thing, um, and talk about Tony maybe before your accident as a, as a child, what kind of character were you, if, if you can remember that, you know, at that stage? I'd struggle myself to remember what I was like as a child, probably, but do you have any memories of, like, before the accident, of what life was like for you? Well, I do, actually. Uh, my mum uh, used to say that I was a real tearaway. Uh, I, I would just be uh, finding every way I could get out, out of the backyard, I'd be climbing through the fence or over the fence and I'd be at the neighbours next door and uh, I was just one of those kids that was very active and, and all over the place. I was a, but I was skinny. I wasn't, I wasn't very big at all. And uh, I went through um, Maryvale School in, uh, in, in Maryvale in Tauranga here and, uh, and then into Tauranga Intermediate. Um, but when I was at uh, primary school at Maryvale, that's when I had my accident uh, when I was nine years old. So um, that was the case, and I can remember it clearly, even today. 
uh, I was playing soccer on a Friday afternoon with my friends at the school in the school grounds. And then on Saturday morning, my friend Gary, who lived about four houses down from me, his dad belonged to uh, one of the service clubs here in Taronga. And they were given a uh, two wagons of coal that were uh, being sponsored and two railway wagons of coal. And so the, the object of the exercise was to go over there with, the, with all the dads and, and of the service club and we would be bagging the coal into sacks and then they were taken around and, and um, given away and donated and, uh, as part of the, the organisation. And I went with my friend Gary. So and I can remember saying to my mum, look, I want to go with my friend Gary. I want to go with Gary to the, to the railway aisles. And she was very reluctant. And uh, anyway, with a bit of pestering, she, she reluctantly let me go. Mm. So uh, I went with Gary and his dad. And it was at the Timunga railway line, uh, railway yards over here uh, by the Bay Park racetrack. Mm. And there were two wagons of coal sitting on their own and that there was a, a wagon in front of the two wagons with a, a big bulldozer on top of it and then in front of that was a, a small engine and it was right at the end, I remember it clearly, right at the end where the, where the buffer stop was. And we parked the truck and all the vehicles around and there were about seven siding lines there but no other uh, railway uh, vehicles on those siding lines, just these wagons. And so they parked the truck there and I can still remember Gary and I going and picking up some sacks and the, the fathers were there and they were filling the sacks up and then the, pulling the, the sacks back and throwing them up onto the truck. And Gary and I went around behind the wagons because they were being loaded from the opposite side. And so Gary and I went and got some extra sacks and as we came back, the wagons shunted backwards. Um... They don't really know why. Uh, there was an investigation, but all I can do is put it down to fate. Uh, I, I, I don't know. But I was closest to the wagon, and as it rolled backwards, it pushed me down, and I threw the sacks, and Gary got pushed out of the way, and I went under the first two sets of wheels. The next thing I can remember is, you know, the, obviously the, the pain and the, the heat that goes with it. And I can remember Gary's dad coming over and I was actually between the, between the sets of wheels. His dad came over and he was screaming, crying, and all the parents, all the dads were just running around. But, yeah, I didn't know any of them. Mm. And... Uh, you go through all of these things, and I still remember it clearly. Uh, and they were told not to pull me out, to leave me exactly where I was. And um, I suppose the the serious part is that the as the wagons went over, they cauterized the main arteries and squashed them. Mm. So that, in fact, in one way, was a tourniquet. 
and uh, after they'd got some binding and tied me up, I was dragged out. Legs were still there, and uh, ambulance came, and uh, there were a couple of motorcycle cops. I can still remember that clearly. And uh, I'm in the ambulance and going to Tauranga Hospital, and uh, there was a motorcycle in front, motorcycle behind. Got to Tauranga Hospital, and uh, my mum and dad were at the emergency room doors. And, you know, I can still remember clearly looking up at mum and seeing how distraught she was, and I just said, I'm sorry, Mum, but I'll be okay. And then I went into surgery uh, where they amputated both my legs, both above the knee, and then uh, I was put into a coma. And I woke up about six days later, and Mum and Dad were sitting at the end of the bed. And it was funny because they had this really terrible itch in my foot, and I was going to scratch it. And then uh, my mum said that, those legs weren't there anymore. And uh, you can imagine how distraught she was and upset she was. Wow. And for me, it was just like, oh, okay, oh, that that sucks. Um, what do we do now? And uh, I think I think the whole situation affected my mum more than it really affected me uh, and the people around me. Uh, and I think from the perspective of being so young that I hadn't lived a lot of life yet. So the fact that I was still alive was great to start with. And secondly is that I didn't have too many memories that I needed to forget. So I was looking forward to creating my own my own story. And... Um, and having that point of difference, I suppose, which we all search for in life, mine was probably given to me in a in a way that most people wouldn't uh, wouldn't ask for. But at the end of the day, that was the cards that I've been dealt, and uh, I've been very fortunate uh, from that day forward. Yeah, I'm I'm already blown away and amazed by some of the things you've said there. The insight. I, I'm, I'm not sure whether that insight's come, obviously, later in life, maybe. But even as a nine-year-old, and you've talked the attitude that you had, and, and yeah, I, I think some of the comments you made there about not having, you know, a long life in the past to dwell on and all those memories. You just like, well, okay, well, what's next? Mm. And, and considering and talking about that as that's you know, you've you've been gifted that, like you said, not many people would would ask for that. That's for sure. But but seeing it as as that gift, um, you know, is that attitude got you to where you you are today? Do you think, or have you have you maybe the question maybe before that is have you always had that attitude, or is it or has it evolved over time? Uh, I think, I think. Uh, because I had that um, th that this this part of me that wanted to escape all the time, that always wanted to climb the fence, that always wanted to be somewhere or do something, mm. uh, was that little kid early. I was a skinny little runner, as I said before. It's funny. You go through life, and the only photo my parents have got of me with legs 
I'm this skinny guy sitting on a log on the beach with my sister. I'm the type of kid that you'd kick sand in his face. And I look at that photo and I look at who I am today and I can only say that I'd like to think that I would have turned out like I have now. And, and I think that philosophy that I've had is that if losing my legs is the worst thing that's going to happen in my life, the rest of it's going to be great. You see, my parents didn't know any different. And I think, again, that was one of the fortunate things of my life is that they didn't know what to do with a kid without legs. Gosh, we're talking 1967 here. Um, I was born in 58, so I was nine years old. And or I was coming up, I was in my ninth year. And you couldn't go to the library and get a book on how to deal with a kid without legs. You couldn't go on the internet and find out you know, you go today and there's a million stories about people without legs. There's the only book that was available was Douglas Bader and um, uh, uh, Reach to the Sky was the book that he wrote from World War II and his exploits. Now, you know, people like Douglas Bader, an extraordinary person, absolutely amazing. And so, yeah, I, I really fairly early on learned that if this is the worst thing that's going to happen in my life, the rest of it's going to be great. And you don't buy attitude. You don't get up in the morning thinking, oh, I've got a tough day today. I've got to go, I'll go to the pharmacy or I'll go to the chemist shop and I'll buy a box of attitude or a box of motivation. Here's 20 bucks. Mm. You know, you don't buy it. It's, it's inside us. And uh, I, I'm, I look at being fortunate that I had that, that part of my life which allowed me to bring that attitude out. So you, you had that attitude within you already? You could have. I think so, yeah. yeah. I really do. Look, I, I believe that, <laughs> whether it be naively or not, that we're all inherently born with good in us. Yeah. It's our environments it's our, uh, uh, that change our values, that change our perceptions. Yeah. It's the world that changes who we are. Yeah. I believe, that probably the naive part of me believes that we're all inherently born with good circumstances change us. And I was so fortunate to have two parents which, that they were naive as well. They didn't know what to do with a kid without legs. They sent me to, to Maryvale School and I went to the principal, or they went to the principal, uh, Mr. Pettigrew, I remember him very clearly, wonderful man. And he, he said that, um, yes, we want Tony to come back. So I was there in a wheelchair. I spent nine months in Tauranga Hospital, for goodness sake. So I was pretty sick of hospital food by then, I could tell you that. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I can remember coming home from hospital and after spending nine months, the constant care, every time you, you made a noise, a nurse was there. And then I came home and my dad sat me on the lounge floor and he put two big cushions around me and we'd only just got a television and he sat me in the lounge and put these two big cushions around me and sat me up and put the TV on. And I can't remember, something happened and I fell over. I'm like those little topple toys, you know? And I fell over and I couldn't get back up. And I'm, I'm calling out, I'm on my own, calling out. No one's coming. I've just had seven months, nine months of constant care and all of a sudden nobody's here. And I'm rolling around on the floor and I'm, getting quite destroyed. I remember it clearly. And I'm thinking, gosh, how am I going to, how can I, how can I move? What can I do? 
And I sort of rolled around. I hit my head on the on the floor and on the door, and I'm, and then I dragged myself up like a like a young baby does. Got on my elbows and I dragged myself up, and I sort of dragged myself into the kitchen. My mum was I remember clearly standing at the kitchen sink doing the dishes, and I'm calling out, "Mum, mum!" And she turned around. She said, "What, what, what, dear? What's the matter?" And I said, "Mum, I've oh, where is everybody?" And she said, "Well." Your dad's gone to work, your brother and sister have all gone to school, and I'm doing the chores like, like I normally do. And it was like that realisation that life goes on. Like No matter what happened to me, life went on. Everybody else had to do what they had to do. And, and so I just, it's those things in my life which have made me become self-sufficient, self-reliant. Because if I didn't do it, who was going to do it for me? You know? Uh, and those are the little things in my life which clicked, yeah. which said, I need I need to be the best that I can be. And I know that, that my, that's what my mum and dad ever asked of me, is be the best that I can be. Yeah. It's interesting. I was going to ask you a little bit about this probably later on, but... Just that scenario you described there where, um, you know, it was about just getting on with it. Life just goes on. You know, these days maybe that would be less likely to happen. I, I know, and I say that probably from my own perspective, that I'd, if, if God forbid anything like that happened to, uh, you know, a child of mine, I'd want to wrap them in cotton wool and probably over, overprotect them, do everything for them. Yeah. You know, and I think I think that's probably a reflection on society today a little bit. Um, we're we're overprotective. In fact, my youngest daughter says that she calls us the overprotective parents. And and you know, there's something I think there's something in that. You know, based on what you've just been talking about there. You know, that's probably what gave you your attitude and maybe some strength. I don't know, was having to get on with it. The way that the way that you you did is probably set you up well for doing what you've done in your life, maybe, do you think? I do think so. I do think so. I think that, um, and I do agree with your daughter, that we do become overprotective these days. And, uh, you know, I even know with my own children um, that I, I left them to their own devices quite often and let them work it out themselves. You know, we're in this world where we want to make it easier for people that we, you know, especially our, our loved ones we, and our children, we want to make it easy. We want them to, to save them from the, the, the mistakes that we made. But I think that making mistakes is part of life. It really is. Um, I think that uh, it's life is experiences, and if you don't experience it, if someone just tells you it, I'm the type that need to experience it, as we talked about a little mm. bit earlier. I'm the guy that's, that says, I'll do it. I'll give it a go. Um, where other people are quite happy to sit back and learn from other people's experiences. Mm. And I'm not saying that that's the wrong way. I'm just yeah. saying that I'm not that type of person. Yeah. And I wanted my children to experience many of the things that I, that I had to go through. Mm. I think it's, it's given my mum used to call me arrogant. And I keep saying, No, 
I don't think it's a nice thing to say for a mother to say about her son. <laughs> but what she saw is ar- an arrogance is a determination. Mm. You know, in my life, I have a burning desire to succeed yeah. at the things that I choose, at the things that I'm passionate about in my life. Yeah. I have this burning desire to succeed. And sometimes to my detriment, maybe to sometimes the people around me, it 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 can be all ex- consuming and it maybe to my detriment as well. Mm. You know? Yeah. But that's just that's just me. Yeah. Is it you you touched you touched on this before? I, 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 can, I forget your words now, but it was something to along the lines of you'd like to think that you would have uh, turned out this way and done the things you would have done anyway, if you if you hadn't have had the accident. I think is what you were inferring. So, does is are you more determined because of your accident, or is that who you were anyway? And I, and that's a, I think that's a difficult question. I'm. I'm already sort of backing back from it because it, you were nine years old, right? So it is a difficult question, but as I say, using the example of being the escape artist and wanting to move forward, yeah. wanting to see what's over the fence, wanting to, that you know, to do different things, I think that um, I probably still would have been this person. Look, what the, losing my legs did for me is before the accident, I could have done ten thousand things with my life. I could have been a brain surgeon, I could have been an airline pilot, I could have been, uh, you know, anything in my life. Since the accident, I can do 8,000 things with my life. Now, my choice is to sit and dwell and think about the 2,000 things I'm never going to do or go out and do the 500, which are going to make my life great. So I think that's a good analogy of my life. Mm. Don't sit and think about the things that you'll never do. That you'll never be able to do. Yeah. It's like people say, oh, you know, well, I can never be an all black. Well, they probably use me as a ball or something like that. I'm not sure, <laughs> but I can play for represent New Zealand in wheelchair basketball, which I've done. Yeah. yeah. So life treats us in different ways. Yeah. There's always a way of achieving your goal. Mm. It's one defining door. the goal. Yeah. One door might be closed, another one opens if if you look for it. Well, I, I think one door closes and five open. Yeah, maybe. But you've got to be open to all of those doors. You, yeah. you yourself have to be open. You have to be receptive to it. Yeah. But so many of us are too scared to close one in the first place. Yeah. You know, we always want to keep our foot. We want to try and keep our options open. Mm. And so often we don't look forward. We don't look further because we've, we're still trying to keep our options open. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm a close the door person and let's look for the next one. They talk about, you know, I've heard many of these athletes and, and good on them. You know, they say, we gave it 110% this time. We gave it, you know, 140%. It's like, I don't believe in that. I don't rub it. It's 100%, you know. You just be the best that you can be. And if you've given it the best and you can sit back and look at what you've done and where you've got to and know in your heart that you've, you've, you've given everything, you've left nothing then it's about personal satisfaction. Yeah. Who are we trying to impress in life? I've got nobody to impress in my life but me and hopefully my family. Yeah. To, to be that person that, mm. that, that my children would aspire to be. Can I ask you, Tony, I, I'd like to come back to, when we talk about some of the things you've achieved, that determination and your approach to it, I think we'll come to that. But 
you just said there about not impressing anyone in, in your life. I, I had a question about, you know, because I've read elsewhere that you, your, I think you was it your mum that was told or your parents anyway were told after the accident not to expect that you you'd live beyond twenty. Yeah. Um, and is, is there an element? I've got a couple of things around that. One is the impact on that on your parents. Well, I'd like to talk a bit more about, about them if, if we can in, in a second. But but is there an element? I'm just and I'm inquiring because I, I've had this experience myself personally, but also I've spoken to other guests with you know that's had a similar impact where someone's told you something that either you can or you can't do, or there's certain expectation, and thankfully nothing like that in my life, but did that ever, and I don't know when you found that out, that, that your parents have been told that, but did that ever come in to be a motivator for you to prove that actually I'm not just going to live beyond 20, but actually I'm going to live a full life? Has that ever been a driver or a motivator for you? Well, I actually learned that later in life, I have to admit. Funnily enough, um, when I wrote my first book, uh, uh, which was Racing to the Top, and that's a life story up until that particular point of my life. And uh, Liz Dobson, who was a, a journalist, helped me write the book. And so I put all the stories and wrote the stories, mm. and she helped me compile it into chapters and into a book, basically. And she did the interview of mum, right, because there was a chapter on mum, chapter mm. seven. And it was about, you know, how mum dealt with me in my life and it wasn't until I I read that that chapter I never got to see the manuscript before it actually went to the printers and it wasn't until I'd read it that I realized that that mum even then still blamed herself for letting me go that day for letting me go to the railway yards and this this accident happened you know and I had to come up to her and I said mum let it go mum I'm okay I've had an extraordinary life and it's going to be even better. So let it go. I'm okay. You've you've been the best mum you could have ever been, you know? And that that was very it was a big part of my life and it was great for her to be able to do that. And she she told me the story about, you know, you weren't supposed to live past 20 years old. And you know, I, I asked her why. And she said, well, they said that, um, you know, you either the pressures of life would be too great and you were probably going to do away with yourself. And I looked at them and I, I cracked up. I laughed and I thought, you know, goodness. And it was one of, the, one of the things I say is that I got the age of 20 years old. They sent me to a psychiatrist because they said I wasn't going to live past the age of 20 years old. They sent me to a psychiatrist. You know, I was in there for three hours with that man. It took me that long to straighten him out. <laughs> man, did he have some hands? <laughs> and that's one of the things we deal with, isn't it? In life is people's perception. Yeah. They know that they make these comments, statements, or whatever based on on what they don't know me. Mm. They don't know my who where I came from. They don't know my life up until that point, mm. and yet they based it on pre-war. Uh, shell shock and all that sort of stuff, you know, um, because that's what we were dealing with. Even the artificial limbs that I used to have, they were big, heavy wooden things. We're all in a post-war era. So most of the people that went to the limb centre were really old guys 
that had been lost limbs in the in the war. And so, you know, here's this young kid at the limb center, and I had three months off uh, school at a time to get these artificial legs. And they were big, heavy, they were carved out of wood. These, these uh, guys that made them were experts, amazing people. They'd make sockets for me, um, uh, molds with plaster of Paris and for my stumps, and they would have these wooden legs and they had huge hinges on the side of them. And they were big, heavy, you know, and I'd sort of lumber around with crutches on. And, you know, when it got wet, one leg would go that way, one leg would go that way and it'd fall flat on my face. In fact, they had a heck of a job getting a date there for a while. But, <laughs> you know, and, and that was because that's what we did. And in today's world, obviously, we've got carbon fibre and we've got all these things. But, you know, I prefer to be like I am without legs. I don't need artificial limbs. You know, I can stand in the corner with my jeans on and all the girls would be going, oh, 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 he's a good-looking guy. But I would. I'd take one step forward, one leg would go that way, the other one I'd fall flat on my face. And they made me look normal. What's normal? This is, this is the package right here. It doesn't get any better than that. I don't need artificial legs. I don't need something else to make me be normal. Yeah. Because what is normal? You know, we're in this world where we judge people. We, we put them in a box. Oh, you're one of those disabled people, so we'll put you in a little box over there. And mm. Oh, you know, you've, you're blind, so we'll put you in a box over there. And um, you're deaf, so we'll put you in a box over there. Or, you know, we used to call people crippled. You know, what a terrible word, crippled. Then, they, then we call them disabled and handicapped. Nowadays we're called physically challenged, you know, or vertically challenged in my case. <laughs> you know, we don't have to stick labels on people to, to be who you are. And, and that's, you know, another discussion is again is, you know, this PC world that we're in, you know, being correct about what we call somebody. Why do we have to why do we have to label them in the first place? Why can't we just be yeah. who we are? Yeah. It's funny, you're, you're getting to topics that I was going to get to, and we're just going to follow these threads because it's, it's good. But so, so tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that. And we'll, we'll go back to where I was going to go back to. But you know, because you're quite right, I was going to talk to you about the, the those kind of stereotypes and the boxing and the labels and you know. How has that changed and has it changed for the better over time or, you know, what, what are your thoughts about today's world? To, um, to be honest, in my opinion, I don't think that it's a really good thing. You, they call diversity and all of these, the new words um, that are out there these days and, and I, I think it's more accepting people for who they are and, and what they've achieved rather than than being descriptive of their their challenge in life. Everybody faces challenge. I'm sure sitting across, looking at you today, you've got challenges in life, you just can't see them. You know? So why do we need to put a label on somebody? Why do we need to judge people? Um, we are all different. We have different values, how we're brought up, uh, our parents, uh, religion, with a lot of people, mm. um, but we 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 want to put people in boxes, you know. You, yeah, it, it is a tough, it's a tough question for me to answer, because I only know what fits in my life, mm. and 
But what I will say, if people can remember the guy without legs that did this, did this, did this, did this, then that's my point of difference. So, I, you know, I was the sign writer here in Tauranga that used to climb scaffolding and sign write the fronts of buildings and used to do it without legs and people used to stand underneath. What, they used to ask me to climb down just so you can see how I got back up again. And or there'd be two of us, three of us up on a plank, but only two pairs of legs hang over the side. Yeah. People go, "How the heck do you do that?" Yeah. If th that's what I want people to remember or or, or to ask the questions, yeah. right? Yeah. So me being like I am and 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 being out in front and not caring. Look, life is experiences, and. And I want to experience as much of life as I can. So the fact that I don't have any legs shouldn't make any difference. I'm a qualified lifeguard. I've performed over 33 rescues, 33 documented rescues in my life. I can remember one at um, Amanu, the Amanu Surf Club over at um, Mount Monganui there. And uh, my friend um, Warren, Warren was the, uh, the other lifeguard on duty that day. We were called to rescue about four kilometres from the surf club down towards Papama. And so I'm sitting on my backside in the sand and I jumped up into the jeep and off we go. And uh, there were three young people caught in a rip. There were two boys about 200 metres offshore and there was a girl of about 17 or 18 years old. Warren went out to get the two boys. Obviously, I went and got the girl. <laughs> and when I got to her, she was in a great amount of distress, really upset, I put the rescue tube around her and we slowly swam back into the beach. And during that, that time, with that conversation, I was calming her down. And I think she had this image of a six foot two bronze lifeguard. And we got into the beach, and I'm in the short break, and I'm sitting in the sand, and I've got my arm over, and I'm dragging her along. And we got to the point where she could stand up because she stood up, she looked down at me, looked out at the surf, looked back down at me, and fainted. I gained a reputation of causing more accidents than I saved. <laughs> but. You know, th those are the, the parts of my life which it, it doesn't matter. I didn't need legs to be a lifeguard. Yeah. You know, I didn't need legs to save that girl. Mm. Yeah. And, and so why do we need to make a big deal out of the no legs thing? Um, a lot of people say I'm an extraordinary person. I don't think so. I'm an ordinary person. Sometimes I do extraordinary things. Anybody can learn to fly an aeroplane. That may be an extraordinary thing that I do it without legs. Anybody can race cars like I do. Maybe it's an extraordinary thing that I do it without legs. Anybody can climb Kilimanjaro. Maybe it's an extraordinary thing that I do it without legs. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. All I know is it's my life and those are the things that I choose to do. And everybody in in the world has the same opportunities. They call me lucky. Luck. You go, Tony, geez, you're so lucky you got run over by a train and lost your legs. All righty. <laughs> well, they tell us that adversity makes us a better person, don't they? They yeah. tell us that, that a challenge in our life makes us dig down deep inside and it brings out the best in us. My question is why do we wait? Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to tap into, I think, is, you know, is, is that, is, you know, your challenges, uh, you know, you say that anyone can 
climb Kilimanjaro. Anyone can learn to be a pilot, but not everyone does, and not no. everyone who and actually everybody wants to. You know, everyone who could doesn't, and actually, some of them, a lot of them, think they can't. Which you know, and and maybe because other people might think you can't. There's an element of proving that you can't. I don't know. Is, is that you know? Does that some of that drive come from there? I suppose that's what I'm digging for, Tony. Is where does that come from? I mean, you know, <laughs> the, the drive to prove people wrong. Well, not well. Is it or is it a, a drive to prove to yourself or to prove to your parents that actually you know I'm I'm I am all right and I have a, a you know a great life. That's an interesting question, you know, and it's a tough one to be honest. What I do know is it's just me. It's my DNA. It's it's the person I want to be. Um, the, I, I never want to give up. I don't want to be that person that gives up uh, at the things that I choose and the things that I'm passionate about in my life. I don't want to be that person that gives up. Uh, I want to be the hundred percenter. You know, it's not ninety five percent. It's not ninety percent. The things that I'm passionate about, I give it a hundred percent. And maybe it is to prove to myself, you know, I'd say no is not an option. Can't's not an option because that's what I choose. Those are the philosophies that I have. Whether I got them from my mum and dad, I think I just got my tenacity from my mum and my dad just to get out there. As I say, I was running around the neighbourhood with my friends when I was just out of hospital. My mum had a whistle. She used to stand on the, on the, the front doorstep and whistle around the street and I could hear the whistle to come home for dinner because she wouldn't know where I was. Um, the boys used to take me to the top of the hill. We lived at the street that had a hill and they'd sit me on the push bike and just let me go down the hill and I'd get halfway up the other side and pull into a drain and fall off onto the grass. <laughs> had an amazing time. You know, I had some of the best friends in the world. Uh, they didn't care that I didn't have legs. They, it made no difference to them. You know, my mum would be distraught standing on the side of the street saying, get off the bike, you know, you're silly, you'll hurt yourself. And I'd go, great, that's what I want to do. I want to find where the limit is. That's an interesting thing, I want to find where the limit is. Yeah. Where your limits are. Yeah. Yeah, whether they're self-imposed or whether they're the environment around you. I don't know, but I do want to find where the limit is. Yeah, yeah. Someone said to me once, when is enough enough? I love racing, motorsport. I love aviation. You know, I'm, I'm either racing my car, racing my sidecars and drag cars and I've got hot rods, and, you know, motorsport and mo things with engines is my passion. I've taught myself how to build things and to weld and, and I've got a great workshop and I just, and I'm, I love that sort of stuff. And someone said to me, when is enough enough? You know, I, I, that's a, a, a difficult question to answer because I don't think there'll ever be enough because I'll always be striving for the next thing until the day I leave this earth. You know, yeah. while this body is able to do the things that it does, it, it, it's possible can do, I'm going to be doing it. Yeah. But I have to be passionate about it. It has to get my attention. My staff with my sign writing business used to say I was a difficult guy to work for. And I'd say, okay, why do you say that? And they say, because I had such high expectations of everybody. 
you know, and I would do things and make them, they felt at times a little bit foolish because here's this guy without legs climbing the ladders and getting up there and on cherry pickers and sign writing billboards and things like that and digging holes with a postile borer and they are thinking, oh, maybe we, no, we won't be doing that. And I'm out there doing it. They didn't realise. See, when I had my accident, there was no such thing as ACC, the old social welfare system. So, you know, nobody came to my parents and said, oh, here's $50,000, because that's what they used to do. And those, it was a lump sum days when ACC first came out. So I think you got $10,000 if you lost an, lost an eye. You got $15,000 or $20,000 if you lost an arm. You got $20,000 if you lost a leg, $25,000. We probably would have got fifty thousand bucks. Would have been a lot of huge amount of money. No, the old social welfare system. So it was a different world. I, mm. I had to go to school. I, I had to. Uh, I had to think about my life and when I when I got married, my children, and I I wanted to own my own business by the time I was thirty, and I owned it when I was twenty five. I wanted to own my own house by the time I was twenty one. I owned it when I was twenty. Well, the bank did, but, you know, like, like yeah, yeah. most of us. Yeah. So I'd always set goals. I always had this perception. At the age of 17, 18 years old, my friends were all heading off around the world doing the big OEs and things like that. Well, for me, it wasn't a practical thing to do. Yeah. And by then I'd been away to um, uh, a lot of the international uh, disabled games and um, Paralympic games and things like that. So I'd seen a lot of the world by then. Uh, my friends were just off doing their big OEs and doing their big experiences and, you know, I decided to stay home and be a self-taught sign writer mm. and um, and get a job and, you know, have some security. Where did the goal setting come in? When, when did you kind of recognise that that was a thing that was actually working or going to work for you? You know, having a goal, you know, buying your house by 21 and then you, you know, Achieved that beforehand, you know those kind of things. When, at what age did you set yourself start to set yourself? Well, goals? I think that sort of really started from that accident time where you, you know, you get the artificial legs and you know you learn to walk and and how far you can walk and then with crutches and you know then the next minute you walk hundred meters with the crutches and then you learn to walk without the crutches and I'd fall over and you you it was milestones all the time in my life. There was always. Where do we want to be? What's the next thing? What's the next step for want of a better explanation? Yeah. And even with schooling, what do I want to do? Where do I want to be? Um, what do I want to learn? What am I see? I want to be an engineer. I actually thought I could be an engineer. And a friend of mine said, no, you know, engineering's pretty difficult, big steel beams and stuff like that. But, you know, you, you like art, you're a great artist. I used to do a lot of um, ticket writing and things like that when I was 13 and 14 years old. My friends were about doing a, a paper and earning 10 bucks a week and I could earn 50 and 100 bucks a week doing ticket writing and, and sign writing. Right. Um, so I had I had this artistic flair. And so uh, I sort of went went that way and nobody had given me a job and I, 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 I actually got a job down at the museum working for Tauranga City Council um, doing sign writing down at the museum and then I got a ticket writing job at one of the large supermarkets here in Taronga and that started my sign writing career and then I went and I, I, I 
I'm just self-taught. And then I got a job at uh, a sign writing company here, doing commercial signs, and ended up buying the company, the old buying the company thing, and uh, uh, very successful, very successful company. And it was a great part of my life. I, I was an employee one day and an employer the next. So life has been a lot of learning curves for me. Made a lot of mistakes. Made a lot of good choices as well. Yeah. So, yeah, what was that like, that change from an employee to an employer? What was the difference for you? Oh, well, I was, I'm, I'm a very sociable person and you came from that environment where on, on the Friday afternoon I was up in the lunchroom with all the boys and everybody's talking about what they're going to do on the weekend and Monday morning you became the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> And so, and I, it took me quite a while to get over that actually, yeah. and um, and to have that separation of them and us, and all of a sudden you were the one paying the bills and things. And mm. Then I started to learn about, um, you know, P and L and you know profit loss and assets and liabilities and yeah. all those sorts of things, which were yeah. that was a very steep learning curve for me, yeah. and uh, and the relationship for me changed with my staff, right. and. I probably had to change with it. I became a marketer as well. You know, I, I was the best advert for my company. I, mm. I can remember going out and uh, going to quote the sign writing of a 20-meter wall and I jumped out of the back of my van into my chair and I'll tell you what, the look on the guy's face, he's sort of looking around for the sign writer who's, <laughs> who's going to be do that job sort of thing. Yep. And uh and those are the things that I that I enjoy, and I uh, changing people's perceptions. Yeah, yeah. You know? Being that person that that you don't see. Yeah, I think we've all got talents. We, you know, never judge a book by its cover. That, that's a good old saying, I reckon. Mm. And uh, and I'm I'm one of those. Mm. People look at me and they see me without legs. People come up and say, "Gosh, you must have had a tough life, a terrible life." Mate, I've had an extraordinary life. And, and if people people say, well, look, if you could have legs today, you know, in this new modern world, aren't we, where they can, they can just about give you a new anything, mm. you know, can we, if you could have legs, you know, would you? And I said, no, goodness, I'd probably get the wrong colour and the wrong size. I don't know. <laughs> I'm quite happy the way I am. I have an extraordinary life. Yeah. Having no legs or not having legs is my point of difference in life. Yeah. We all need, we all want a point of difference. There are people out there that are changing themselves to create a point of difference. You know, I've just had it done for me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people want to be something, someone different. They think it'll, I don't know what they, they think it'll do to their lives. But as I said, this has just created a different life for me. What my life would have been like, I have no idea. I can only hope and think that it will be like it is today. Yeah, listening to you, I think I think it would have been. <laughs> I think that you know your attitude and your philosophy and approach to life. Well, the stories would be different. Yeah, different stories. Right? But There'd be different stories. We've all got stories. Everybody's yeah. got a story yeah, in yeah, life. Yeah. yeah. So many people just think that nobody cares about their story. Nobody wants to hear their story. Yeah. Where well, we do, everybody's got a book in them. Everybody's got an extraordinary story. And if I could do anything today, it would be to encourage people to get out and share their story. 
I don't know if many of your listeners are of the older generation, but they have so much to offer. I've been had the, I can't speak at Probus clubs and things like that, you know, at the retirement villages, and I'll get a call every now and again, and if I can if I can fit it in, I do it, and I go and talk to the 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 um, the residents there, and one of the things I want to leave with them is share your story, make make and let the people know, let the world know who you were mm. when you leave this earth. Yeah. You know, I I actually want, and I know it goes down the track a little bit further, but I've been to the older you get, the more funerals you go to. You notice that? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you're young, you go to a lot of 21st birthdays and weddings. The older you get, the more, the more funerals you seem to go to. And I went to one uh, a couple of years ago. And I remember the, the, the minister saying that about the dash. I don't know if you've heard about the dash. But you've got the day that you're born. You've got the day that you pass on your, on your stone. And you've got the dash. You've got that dash in the middle. It's up to it. That's all you've got. Right? And that's, that depicts your life. And it's up to us to decide how long, how big, how how fulfilled that dash is. And I really think that that's stuck in my mind. Mm. Create your dash. You know, the, the last number is inevitable. It's going to happen to all of us. It it's that scrapbook of life. I want to open up my scrapbook of life when that day comes and and look at it and say, yeah, I did that. I had an awesome family. I did this. I had successful businesses. I represented my country. I've I've done motorsport, I climbed Kilimanjaro, I've done this, I've done this, I've been to Bonneville, I did over 200 miles an hour at the Bonneville Salt Flats, you know, saw the movie The World's Fastest Indian 27 times. It inspired me to go to Bonneville. So I took my drag car there in 2008. You know? And that's what I want my scrapbook to say. Yeah. And then I might be, oh, I didn't do that, but then maybe I didn't want to do it badly enough. Yeah. That's going to be my level of success. That's going to... That's what I want people to remember. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, legacy is what we talk about on the show. But, I mean, every every day or every event, uh, you've been creating that over, over a period of years and years by doing the things that you've done. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend a company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, we've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organisation, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz. What were some of the first things that you did, some of the first challenges? You know, we've got this list on your website, and, and obviously, like you've said, it's not up to date. There's, there's a hell of a lot more. <laughs> and there's stuff that you, you're striving for in the future, which yep. is fantastic. What was the 
you like the catalyst for that what what was the you mentioned about the uh, um athletic side of things was that were you at a school age when you started doing that or? yes yeah 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 it was it was one of the things because there were these these movements this guy came uh he was from the amputee association all of a sudden i'd i'd come into this 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 category or this group mm. and they were as, as i said they were all sort of post-war type um uh People so they were a little bit older, and I, and I was this young kid, and I didn't know anything about disabled sport, for example. Um, and I ended up being approached and got into that movement, and it was great because, like, I'd play basketball, for example, and there'd be five of us on the court in wheelchairs, and the able-bodied guys were the odd ones out. <laughs> you know, so the referee was the able-bodied guy, and we'd be running into him and running him over, and <laughs> and and things like that, but. That was great for me because I was in that environment of other people that were that were in a similar situation to me that used a wheelchair to play their sport, and and that became a, a great part of my life. So I used to throw the do field events, shop, and and sport in those days to do international, you had to be good at four or five events, whereas today you specialize. You specialize in the one hundred meters. The the, the 200 metres, you specialise in just the discus, just the javelin. Whereas international sport for w groups with in the disability uh, arena, you had to do four or five sports before you could even think about getting selected. So, gosh, I'd be doing field events. I'd throw discus and javelin and uh, swimming and um, shot put and uh, do some wheelchair races. And, and so I, I just did a bit of everything. Then I got into weightlifting, and uh, I became a weightlifter as well. So that was really good fun. Great part of my life, something that I could focus on, and I think sport's great for any any kid. All my friends are all playing rugby and doing those sorts of things, soccer, which I, I obviously wasn't um, able to do. So uh, I went that sport way, and it was great. Got me overseas really early in my life, and... Uh, and it taught me a huge amount about the different, I use the term loosely, disabilities of people, that we're all different and we all had different. So that became my point of difference again. Did you, was there an element of, I mean, what you've described there, you know, the sports that you were doing, there's, there's a strength aspect to it. Were you, I wanted to ask about this actually, about your, the strength to be able to pick yourself up and and do what you've done, like you said, you know, you didn't have the prosthetic legs. Um, so we were, were you naturally building strength anyway. So right. you know, climbing around and doing well, that kind well of. Well, my stuff. arms became my legs. Yeah. So that so I'd be uh, I didn't use my wheelchair a heck of a lot to be honest. In, in the younger days, I'd either you know be on my artificial legs for school because I had to wear them at school. But it's like when you came home, everybody take their shoes off. I took my artificial legs off and and just ran around on my backside. And yeah. so my arms became my legs and I became very, very strong uh, in, yeah. in the shoulders and, yeah. and, and the body basically. And, uh, you know, my stumps became very, very tough as well. Uh, my backside became like leather. And, right. um, you know, so I, I was pretty tough from that, from that all of that stuff. Yeah. And the sport was just an extension of that, you know. And then that—that—that that, that was the never give up thing. Yeah. Always wanted to throw further. I always wanted to go faster in the wheelchair. Always wanted to.
push it to its limit, no matter what I did, mm. always pushing it to the limit. Yeah. And then I sort of got into motorsport, uh, which was a passion of mine around 18, 17. My dad built me a go-kart early in my life. Yeah. And so I did a lot of motors, uh, kart racing mm. here in Tauranga. And I used to travel. We used, my dad and I used to travel. It was great fun. Something, you know, the father and son thing. Yeah, yeah. And then sort of when I grew a bit older, I got into speedway. Uh, speedway was a great sport for me, motorsport. And, uh, because when you put your helmet on, you didn't have gears and things like that. You only had an accelerator and a brake and that was it. Mm. Um, and so you put your helmet on and you were just like everybody else. And mm. I was extremely competitive uh, in speedway, racing midgets, sprint cars, right. and then into saloon cars. Mm. Uh, the old, you know, went through the old Bay Park track and the new Bay Park track, Western Springs, Kihiki, Huntley, raced in all of those tracks. It was great. Again, motorsport, great part of my life. I just want to go back, Tony, sorry, because I, I think we might have brushed over just your athletic side of things. So you were competing internationally. Were you, you were travelling overseas? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and how well were you doing? Oh, pretty good. I've got a couple of gold medals and silver medals and, uh, and yeah. in the national games and uh, yeah. Vespics and things like that. Yeah. So you weren't just participating? No, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> No, I never want to be just a participator. No, right. I, you know, uh, if I if I couldn't have achieved the uh, the levels that was required uh, to make the grade for the team, anyway, you, you wouldn't have gone. Yeah. Um, so I I always had those goals to get to those. To, but then you go overseas and you meet someone that you know. I've been on the top step of a podium and you you've looked at the guy next to you and you thought, well, you know, even though he was stronger than I was and Looked at the other guy and he maybe had a better technique than I did. But quite often I just thought that that was my day. Mm -hmm. As an athlete, you always know there's someone out there better than you. Mm -hmm. Maybe you just hadn't met them yet. But that was my day. And how did that feel, winning, doing well, you know, achieving? Oh, great. It's, it's not so much the winning as such. It's just the part of being there. Yeah. Like a lot of people say, oh, you know, you, you haven't won the silver, you've lost the gold. And I've never, I've never looked at it that way. Mm. It's about being the best that you can be. Mm-hmm. And, and so often it was really just about um, the participation part. I wouldn't, look, if I didn't have a chance, I probably would do something else. However, you tell the guy in the, in the bronze with a personal best, that he doesn't deserve to be there. You tell the guy with a silver that has exceeded everything that he's ever done before that he doesn't deserve to be there. So as an athlete, you always know that there's someone better than you out there. They maybe just haven't met them yet. It's just not their day. You know, the guy that fought. It's all about being part of it. Participation. Being is, is as important to me as, as whether you be on the top step or not. So participating, yes, but being the best that you can be. Yeah. Giving your best. Yep. Win or lose. Yep. It doesn't, doesn't no. matter. There's no losing, really, if you're giving your best. Yep. Right? Yeah. And that's that's really my philosophy, is it's about participating. Mm. It's like we're not always going to we're, – we're not all going to be the, the top guy that's that got the world records and is remembered in history and things like that. Mm. But the other thing is, and I say to a lot of people, but without you, they don't look good. <laughs> yeah. You know, because it takes 
the participants. It takes the, the other athletes, it takes the other people in the group to make those top people look good. Because without you, they wouldn't be anywhere. The challenge of the competition. Yeah. So, so sorry, we, we, I went back because I just wanted to touch on that. But sure. you, so you took that kind of attitude forward into into motorsport as well, and you you didn't just participate there either, did you? Really, you, you did quite well there. No, no, I've always I've always wanted to do well. I've yeah. always wanted to do something better. Um, yeah, always making changes to the cars and things like that. That's mm. development. Mm. Um, watching what other people are doing, mm. you know, trying to get the edge. Yeah. Um, so it's not just a strength thing, like in, in the athletic type of sports, it was, it was about strength and building up. And, you know, if you could, if you had those techniques and those things, you could be as good as the other people. Whereas motorsport was a little bit different. It was what tyres to use. It's making all these different choices to go out and be competitive, right? It's, and it's picking a, a time, for example, or, or a level of where you think you can get to. And if you can attain that and reach that goal, then that's that's where I want to be. Yeah. I, I don't I don't have to be in the top grade of the top class mm. to enjoy my motorsport, especially. Yeah. yeah. And so, how long were you in motorsport? I mean, I still am. You still are. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. No, um, much much to my wife's. Um, <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Sur Surprise! Or uh, oh, well, I've had a couple of couple of crashes over the years, right. and you know, tipped yeah. things over and bent a few parts and yeah, things like yeah. that. I've banged yeah. myself up a few times. Yeah. Spent the odd night in hospital, things like that, with a concussion and yeah. and um, learning opportunities, you know, right? Learning opportunities, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I look I look at motorsport for me as a bit of an analogy of life. Is if I follow the person in front of me, where am I going to finish the race? second or behind, you know. Mm. But in my life, I'm a leader, not a follower. Yeah. And sometimes leaders take risks. Yeah. Uh, hopefully calculated risks, but leaders take risks. Mm. So to pass the guy in front of me, I've got a speedway, for example, I've got to get close to the concrete wall. Mm. And I do crash sometimes, but I win a lot of races as well. Mm. And I, so I think motorsport for me is a good analogy of life. Mm. If you follow the person in front of you, that's where you're going to be. It's okay. I'm not saying it's not okay. Yeah. For me, it's not okay. Mm -hmm. For me, it's to strive to be the best. Yeah. Be better. So where was, what was the next challenge then after, you know, what was, at what point, you've obviously been uh, an athlete, you're running your own business, you're in motorsport as well. What's, you know, what's next and why? What was the need for more challenges? What's next and why? <laughs> Again, it's a tough one. Yeah. You, because you, I've got things in my life that I that I feel a little bit unfinished business. Yeah. Uh, like in some motorsport, for example. Well, sorry, I mean, what, sorry, what, what I meant, Tony, was, you know, what, what came next and why? Oh. You know, like. Well. During that time, you're trying to run business, you're trying to bring yeah. up your family, mm -hmm. you're trying to better, better the whole environment that you've created mm -hmm. um, for your children and, and things like that. So that became quite a focus. Mm -hmm. I've built several houses, well, seven seven houses now. Uh, I love property development. That's another another thing I've sort of moved into now. Um, uh, just trying to 
always go the next step, get something a little bit better, yeah. uh, improve my, my financial uh, background and backing so that um, I can have some security later in life. Mm. So those are all important things. They, they haven't been lost on the way. Mm. Uh, I've had to try and do a lot of juggling um, to get all of those things, pieces to fit. Yeah, life is a jigsaw puzzle. It's, and and I've, got, I've still got a few gaps there to fill. So what, what about, because um, you sold your business. Sold commercial signs, yeah. Yeah. What stage of your life was that? When was? Gosh, that was uh, over 20 years ago now. And I started to do the speaking thing. There was a book called Success in New Zealand Business, who uh, written by a guy, Paul Smith. He'd, he'd written, I think, four or five of them. Anyway, I became a chapter of the book of um, in regards to my sign writing business, which... In, in its uh, form was very successful here in Tauranga um, on a national basis. And everybody knew the sign writer without legs, you know. And so um, there was a, a book launch in Auckland for, uh, for Paul Smith's book. And they asked me to go up and be a part of the book launch. And I remember it really clearly. It was 700-odd people in the Aotea Centre for the Auckland Chamber of Commerce was the was the book launch. In fact, Michael Barnett at the time was the, the chairman of the Auckland Chamber of Commerce. And funny enough, I saw Michael this morning on, on uh, television on the AM program. Anyway, wonderful man. Love, love, love the lovely guy. And they'd had this thing organized. And uh, who was there was a, an MC in it, but they had a little bit of a low stage. Anyway, they did the presentation of the book and they John Hart and Paul Holmes were also in the book. And they were supposed to be presenters there. Anyway, I'm sitting there having lunch. I'm Michael Barnett's right beside me, in fact. And this guy came up to him and said, Michael, they're not coming. They're not coming. And he said, who are you talking about? He said, Paul Holmes and John Hart. They're not coming. They're not, they're, John Hart's in Australia and Paul Holmes is, is in, in Napier. They're not coming. You've got nobody to present from the book. And Michael Barnett turned across to me and said, Tony, can you speak? I said, yeah, mate, I've been speaking for years. You know, <laughs> what do you want me to talk about? He said, oh, anything you like. And I looked at the stage and it was a very low stage. And I thought, oh, goodness. So after lunch, he wanted me to go and do a 10-minute presentation. And I thought, gosh, nobody will see me. 700 people, what would we do? Anyway, just next door to the bathroom, there's a big curtain and behind it was a scaffold. Two A-frames and a, and a plank. And I said to Michael, get that scaffold, put it up onto the stage, and I'll climb up onto the top of it, and I can speak from there, and everybody will see me. He said, can you do that? And I said, yeah, mate. I said, yeah, I've been doing it all my <laughs> life, no problem at all. <laughs> so he gets the scaffold put up on the stage, and everybody's going, what the heck is all this all about? Anyway, I get introduced. I come up my wheelchair. I climb it, jump out of my chair, climb to the top of the scaffold, and I start presenting. And I just told stories, just told stories about my life and how I became in the book and all that sort of stuff for 10 minutes. And I got a standing ovation. <laughs> it was just, this crowd went absolutely nuts. I think, oh, this is pretty cool. Yeah. And I sort of get down and jump back in my chair and I go around the corner. And Michael goes, that was fantastic. He said, we've got two more presenters. Can you do it again? And I went, oh, can we? 
yeah, I promise. <laughs> yeah, I can do it again. So anyway, we go back. I do another another 10 minutes. Again, another standing ovation. Get down. And Debbie Tours and Jim Haney from Speakers New Zealand. Uh, Debbie Tours was Celebrity Speakers and Jim Haney was Speakers New Zealand. And they both came at me from either side of the hall holding their business cards, going, you'd be a great motivational speaker. Can you give us a call? Give us a call. I didn't know what a motivational speaker was. I'd never heard of one in my <laughs> life, you know. And so, anyway, three months later, um, Debbie Tours gave me a call. I don't know. And said, you know, would you like to go and do a presentation here? And the next minute I started doing presentations and found out you got paid for it. And all of a sudden it came, became a lot more exciting than sign writing. So is that when you sold the business? That's when I sold the business, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was – I thought I couldn't do much more than what I – where I was. I would have to change direction mm -hmm. and there would be a, a huge change and a lot of financial input. And I don't think it would have taken – financially it would have been a, a, a big a step in the right direction. So I thought, well, this this is pretty great. I don't have to have staff. I don't have to have yeah. um, gear. I get paid to go somewhere. Yeah. And so I did it. And it's done me for, gosh, well over 20 years now. Yeah. And it's been a great part of my life. Obviously, COVID has slowed a lot of that down. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's fine. So has that been, Is it? I, I know you've done other things, but has that been for the last 20 years what you would say, that, you know, your job? My, your my career, main job, Your yeah. main job. Yeah. 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 yeah, traveling the world. And I've been to some extraordinary places. I've met some amazing people. Yeah. Uh, spent big, a lot of time. Big crowds as well. Big crowds. The the most I've ever presented to was seventeen and a half thousand in the Singapore Expo Centre, and that was for APLIC, which is the Asia Pacific Life Insurance Congress. Yeah. I've spoken at MDRT, the Million Dollar Round Table, mm -hmm. in uh, Toronto, Canada. Yeah. Um, uh, spoken a lot in Asia for some reason. My presentation seemed to go very, very well in Asia. Right. And uh, I speak through interpreters at times in, in places like Indonesia yeah. and um, and Thailand. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. In the, and, in and you enjoy that, obviously. You wouldn't really do. You, I really do. Yeah. I really love sharing my story. I think, as I said to you before, everybody's got a wonderful story. Yeah. Uh, for me, I've, uh, it's been great that I've been able to turn it into a business or that there actually is a, a business there to be able to... Um, to be a part of mm. and I've met some wonderful people met some amazing speakers with extraordinary stories as well mm. and if you are you consciously adding to that chapters to that story or, or are you just still finding the things that that oh I, I'd like to do that uh, I'll give it a go but uh, is there an element of you know this would be another good chapter in the book yeah yeah there is yeah, there, there is, there's different things that I'm sort of looking at. Life does get in the way uh, from the perspective that I've been flying airplanes for a lot of years now mm. and I decided to, to, to stop flying. Uh, it was just time to do something else. Right. Um, so I, I sold the property that I had, bought another property, built a new house, built a, um, a big shed workshop yeah. for my, my toys and things like that and yeah. got some land and yeah. got some cows and put some trees in. And, you know, <laughs> again, that's another chapter of life. It's yeah. another another building block. Yeah. And those are the things that I enjoy. And are these building blocks things that you can you talk about when, you, when you're when presenting 
Yeah, because of you, the, the, the things that happen to people every day. You can the, relate the, stuff to people. The real life things. Yeah, yeah my, everything that happens in my life is real. It, it's not um, want to be or, mm. or hope to be or anything. It's uh, Everything that I'm doing is real. And if I can impart some of the, those learnings to people, mm. um, maybe just from, don't let it get, you know, they say building a house is the most stressful thing that you can ever do. I think it's great because <laughs> yeah, I love the challenge of it. I love yeah. fixing problems. I love, I, I love the, the headspace where you create things. Mm. Mm. Even though somebody else is building it, I, I, I have sort of hammered a few nails in and things like that, but... Mm. And dug a few holes when I've had to, but to be able to create and put something out there that, that then becomes real, yeah. you know, is great fun. Yeah. And obviously dealing with the issues, you know, in the last few years we've had with building supplies and all those sorts of things, they're all challenges. They're all fun things to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, in your presentations, um, you know. I suppose, depending on the on the client and the reason for the talk, you, you, your stories might change a little bit. But are there some common themes? And I'm not wanting to sort of give things away because you obviously still uh, are available to to talk for um, and present. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you about that, I, I suppose via your website, tonychristensen.com, is yeah. the way to yeah. be in touch. So I don't want to obviously draw out too much because um, there's a there's a commercial. <laughs> Uh, side aside to that for you, but you know what? What are some of the kind of common themes and uh, and lessons that you you impart, and what are what are the impacts of, of those that you're aware of? Well, I think in a in a corporate situation, it, it, we're all individuals. Each and every one of us have a have a different pathway. We've we've had a different life to get to where we are or to a point, and. And from a corporate perspective, you know, with staff and things like that, those are most of the presentations that I do. Mm. It's about trying or getting people to draw on themselves to be the best. You know, so so many are looking outside and they're thinking they would have, should have, could have. Mm. I would have done that, I should have done that, and I could have done that. Mm. What I'm trying to get people to think about is I am, I can, I will. You know, mm. I am, I'm the best that I can be. I can achieve anything that I want to, and I will, I will be the best. You know, changing people's mindsets. And then from a business perspective, from a corporate perspective, that's what you want people to do. You want people to come in. I've had employees, you know, you want, for that eight hours of a day that they're there with you, 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 as an employer, you want them to be focused. You want them to have that drive and that passion to do the best that they can because their success is your success as the employer. And I, I do think that from a corporate perspective, a lot of a lot of corporates actually forget that. They think it's driven at the top and it's actually not. I believe it's driven from the bottom. You have successful people below you, then that creates your success. And that's what I found. If I could stimulate if I could create success with my staff then that flow flowed on to me that created my value yeah. and that's what I try and do don't talk don't worry about what the person next door's doing you know we're too many 
busy focused on what other people are doing rather than having our own backyards and life sorted out. I think technology is a is partly to blame for some of that stuff. You know, many people live their their lives on devices. I hardly use my device. You know, I use it to contact people and things like that. I'm out there because I want to experience, and so many people live their lives through woulda, shoulda, coulda rather than I am, I can, I will experiences. Mm. And so, so I'm a doer, I'm a toucher. If I can touch it, I can feel it, I can smell it, mm -hmm. I can believe it. Yeah. I'm, I'm not always a, a seeing is believing, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm an experiential person. I wanna, and it's what I used to do with my staff. I want to experience everything that they do. I started right at the bottom. Right, I know what it's like to be practicing on a piece of paper how to sign right, to learn, self-taught. Mm. Yet you go through own one of the largest companies in the area, yeah. in the sign writing industry. Mm. Go figure. I didn't. I was. I couldn't go and get an apprenticeship. Nobody give me an apprenticeship. Well, I'm employ a guy without legs. What can he do? You know, couldn't drive the truck. Can't climb ladders, according to them. Can't climb trestles. So what good are you? So I've been, I've had to prove myself all, all my life. To myself, but also to other people. You know, you talk about the, the, the not thinking that I was going to live past twenty years old because of people's perceptions. That's what that's what I've had to deal with all of my life is other people's perceptions, not mine. I'm fine. It's other people's perceptions. It's what they think. But is that when you say you're you're fine? Is that a challenge for you to change their perceptions? Is that when you say you've been battling <laughs> that all your life? Is that is that your challenge? Is to always change well, their perception? It is a little bit. You know, it always has been a little bit of. Well, look what I can do. You know, you yeah. said I couldn't do this. Here I am doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So where's your theory now? Mm. That's I'm a little bit like that. See that, and so you, when you're giving these presentations, you talk about experiences. What's that experience like for you? What do you forget the commercial side of it? But what do you get out of it? Because if you weren't getting something out of it more than the commercials, I don't think you'd be doing it, would you? Look, I've had so many letters, emails um, from people saying I was at your presentation, I saw this. I'm not having a great time, but you man. You just showed me that there is another option. There are. Uh, I was down in the South Island only a few months ago, and this guy came up to me and he said, "You spoke at my son's school fourteen years ago." And he was a bit of a tear away. He was a bit of a bit of a hard guy. He was fifteen at the time. And he said he changed that day and he's changed his life. He's now 29 years old. He's the CEO of a large company. He's doing extremely well. And he said, I can only put it down to that day. 
And I think that we're all like that in one way. There, there are significant things that happen in my life. And for me, if I can change one person's life by thinking a little bit differently about themselves or the challenges that they're facing in my life, out of a conference of 100, 1,000 people, then my job is done. We are talking about the dash before. My, I want my plaque to say my job is done. <laughs> I'm not sure what my job is yet, but, but I'd like my little plaque to say my job is done. Mm. And if my job is to go out and share my story and to show people that with, with a bit of tenacity, with a bit of arrogance, like my mum called me, to get out there and show people that you can do anything you want to in life. Look, there are limits and limitations, right? Yep. There are certain things that I'll never be able to do. Mm -hmm. But there are so many things that you can do. Just what are you passionate about? Decide. Hey, if it's 500, I'll do 500. Yeah. I, I haven't decided yet. I've got a long time to go yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So but how does that feel when you know that you are, when you're getting that feedback oh, from a parent? Amazingly, amazingly. You know, I've been very fortunate to have been some of these presentations and you get standing ovations and things like that. And I think it's a bit ironic, isn't it, really? You get a standing ovation for a guy without legs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, was, I was actually the opening speaker of the Australian Podiatrist Conference. <laughs> Can you imagine a guy with, yeah. with a wheelchair wheeling out onto the stage yeah, yeah. At the, as, as the opening speaker of the Australasian Podiatrist Conference? Yeah. And I looked around and I thought, I said, I think this is someone's idea of a joke. <laughs> well, I, I reckon, I, I think from... What I'm learning of your character, you you would enjoy that being able to the, oh, element, the element of surprise. It was and, so much fun. Yeah, it was so much fun. I've cut myself out of a box with a chainsaw. I was sitting on a stage. I was in um, in Las Vegas in a, a big conference here, and uh, I had a, a wooden wooden crate and had signed it up with fragile the side up and all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, I was on the stage for the presentation of the presenter before me, and he actually put his water bottle and everything on this crate. <laughs> and he just said, I don't know what the crate's doing here, but anyway, you know, he did yeah. his presentation. And as he finished, I started a little bit on a small chainsaw and cut the front of the box out and pushed the front out onto the stage. And I said, can I come out now? You told me the accommodation was a bit tight, but this is getting ridiculous. <laughs> Fantastic. So, yeah, yeah, so there's all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Great fun. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was in Las Vegas again at, a, at another conference. I'd spoken in... Tokyo uh, for Nutramedics in Australia. Mm. I was their closing speaker. Anyway, the next conference for them was in Las Vegas. Anyway, I got to know the CEO and he said to me, um, Tony, we're uh, uh, doing another conference and we want you to be the opening speaker in Las Vegas. Would you do that? And I said, I was actually in the US at the time. I said, yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> so I went there. They put me in a, on a box. You know where they cut the guy in half? Yes. All right. So I'm in one end of the box. I've got a wig and everything on. <laughs> they got the mechanical feet in the other end. Cut the box in half. <laughs> yeah, they, but they, because it was a closed, it wasn't a public, it was a closed one, and they yeah. had a bit of red stuff coming out of the box. <laughs> like that. Then I opened the box and jumped out onto the floor <laughs> and said, you told me it wasn't sharp. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the crowd went absolutely nuts because I was the closing speaker uh, in Tokyo for the opening of this one. And so I've been very fortunate to have had some of those experiences in life. Uh, yeah. Great fun. Yeah. Um, I, I, my philosophy is if you don't enjoy it, don't do it. Mm. You know, there are so many people, there, they're, they're marching through their lives and they're doing things they don't want to do. And, and life is too short to be miserable. Mm. And I do know that there are a lot of people in this world that are miserable, that are mm. finding the challenges of life so tough. And I really feel for those people because I'm one of the fortunate ones. I'm one of the fortunate ones that, that have the ability to see through that, to see past those challenges and look for the good. I believe we're all, everything's good. Everything's good around us. Mm. There's good in everything. Mm. We just sometimes have to wade through the bad stuff to get to it. Find what's, what's fun for you, what's, what's enjoyment for you. That's the thing, isn't it? If you don't enjoy it, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, but it's that feel-good thing, isn't it? Yeah. Feel-good thing. People say to me, do I have down days? You know, surely I have down days. Mm. I think I had a down day. It was 1972 and it lasted 10 minutes. I don't know. <laughs> why, why, do you, why does it have to be perception because I lost my legs when I was so young that I have, have to have a down day or have to have down a life? You think it's miserable. maybe because, you know, most of us do have those – down days, and we think that actually, uh, and on top of that, Tony's not got any legs. So, what must it like be like for him? Yeah, we put our the assumptions of our own lives on, yeah, on others, don't our we? Own assumptions and our own perceptions, and yeah. that tends to be created by where you came in life. You know your values, yeah. and so often yeah. they're from our parents. Our parents might be very um, conservative, yeah. and and. No, that was the great thing for me, my parents. And I use that term lovingly. They were just naive. They didn't know. They were very s simple, hardworking people, mm. you know, wanting to have a give their children and their family a life. Mm. Gosh, my mum was tiny. She was only five, just over five foot one, I think, and she used to carry me around on her hip when I was nine years old coming out of hospital because she didn't know how to get me around. You know, extraordinary people. I'm going to come to that in a second, extraordinary people, if, if that's all right. But what I, I know you're a very positive person, and um, whether you were saying it tongue-in-cheek or not about your down day in 1972. <laughs> but I, I have got a, I've got a question. You know, what has been, with the, with the, with the exception of the obvious of the accident, when you were nine years old, and, and obviously that would have been really tough the years after that of learning to, to, to live what was a normal life, you know, become a normal life for you. I'm sure it was tough. But what, other than that, what have been the tough times for Tony? And, and what, you know, how has your attitude and approach to life helped you get through those? Is there anything that you would be willing to share? Well, I have to say life's not, it's not always been easy. You know, um, there are, I, I've faced the same challenges that, uh, that I think everybody's faced. Um, 
with, you know, financially, with trying to bring up a family, all those sorts of things. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, my friends were off doing their big OEs, and I, so I started really early. And so um, I think that, that for me, I got a bit of a head start on a lot of people of, of wanting to have a better life. When you, when you have a family, for example, you, you, you're bringing other people into the equation, aren't you? you know, and and to, f to find a partner that, that um, wants to share those things with you. My my daughter Danny used to say um, she wanted to be Danny Christensen, not Tony Christensen's daughter. Mm. <laughs> and and I it, it, that that was quite a, a an eye opener for me actually because you know because I was so out there and so large and so well known that how it affected that relationship. And so there's all these little mm. things that I've been working on all my life. And, and how did that affect you? How did you take that? Well, until you know, um, I, well, I didn't know. And then when she told me, mm. it was, uh, yeah, it's a tough one, really. It's, it's quite an emotional thing for me, really, to to know that, that she felt that um, she was an individual yet everybody referred to her because they all knew me mm. as Tony Christensen's daughter, and she wanted to be Danielle Christensen. Mm. Mm. And so I very much tried to pull back from a, a lot of that so that she became the important thing in her life, not mm. not me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, th those little things. Mm. But when you say, uh, when you ask the question about I've probably, because I've been a preemptor of life, I've always thought about things because I've had a pathway, because I've set goals, and you know that you're going to have challenges and you try to deal with those challenges before they're actually happening. I, I really think that, that that's helped me a lot, that I haven't probably struggled as much as many others have. Mm. Or have you, but you've viewed it differently, experienced it differently? Yeah, yeah. I think that I have experienced it differently. I see, I see life in positive, uh, you know, in bright colours. Yeah, I'm a bright coloured person. I don't see mm. life as as um, grey and dull and mm. and you know and dreary. Yeah. I I see life in in bright colours and. From that, I, I think, it, yeah, that it's a great place to be. It's hard to, for me to, to explain it. It really is. Um, but I wouldn't be dead for quits. Let's put it that way. Mm. You know, the options to not do, be doing what I'm doing mm. is not, not great. Mm. You know? So I'm going to fulfill as much as I can. I'm going to put as much as I can into this life. Mm. What are you? And, and you by I suppose most most people's measure, you've probably put far more than than most people and m most of us could ever wish for. I I've, I would like to talk about one in particular, if it's all right, because I'm fascinated by it, and I think it would have been a huge challenge. 
and that's Kilimanjaro. I, I forgot oh, yeah. to I forgot to ask about that earlier, yep. but but climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Can you talk to us a bit about about that? Sure, experience? sure. I, I did uh, a bit of work in here in New Zealand for Korean television, KBS Television, and then they came over here and were doing some filming, and they bought. Uh, originally they bought a young uh, guy in a wheelchair and they wanted him to do compete in a, a half marathon here at, at one of the local games because I was still involved in sport at that time. And they brought him over and said, um, would I train him to do uh, a half marathon in a wheelchair? Well, for goodness sake, the poor guy had only been in a wheelchair for about six months and um, he was he was very young. And he had hardly any strength, and he was a, a quadriplegic, so he wasn't just uh, his paralysed from the waist down. He actually had some um, arm and arm immobility as well, and so we had to find him a, a racing chair. And but, and I don't even, to be honest, I can't even remember how I got into that situation. I think because I'm, I'm a yes person. Someone said, "Oh, Tony, he he knows." A few people, he'll help sort it out, <laughs> and it was a, a yes thing. And then I had to work out how to do it. Anyway, we found a wheelchair. We got him here. I trained him for about a week. Which, goodness me, you know, you're trying to this guy's doing a half marathon, and uh, was it half marathon? Yeah, it was a half marathon. So so twenty kilometers, twenty one yeah. kilometers, and um, I'm thinking, how the heck we're going to do this? But we got him out. We got him in a chair, and we got him comfortable. But I tell you what, he was the most amazing kid. He was only 16, 17 years old. The tenacity, he just wasn't going to give it. Anyway, Koreans were pretty tough on him. Gosh, the, you know, they, they, they were giving him a bit of a hard time. So I took him out training anyway. He finished the half marathon. Absolutely. I, I was gobsmacked. I just amazed that, that, that he actually did it. Anyway. A couple of years later, they came back to me because I was a scuba diver. And they said, we're doing another disability. Every year they have a, pro, a, a day called the Day of the Disabled in Korea. Right. And so they do they did film programs, third world country, to promote the world of the disabled. So they take them into different environments. But anyway, so they came back and they said, we want to teach this guy to scuba dive. Well, I was scuba diving at the time. I had a PWD, which is a person with disability um, a diving certificate. And a friend of mine was the instructor. And so we took them diving. So we went, took them diving on the Waikato and um, up north and out here on the Tioma uh, tug that was out here in um, just on Manakana Island, uh, sorry, Motiti Island. And we did some diving experiences. Anyway, that was another film that was done. And after that, they called me back and said, look, one of the guys was based in New Zealand, the producers, and said, we're going to go to Kilimanjaro. And we're going to take three of you. Do you want to come? And I th <laughs> it just out of the blue. And I thought, oh, okay, why not? You know, yeah. Give it a go. And um, so, yeah, so there was Sue Yong who was um, uh, totally blind. There was a man named Hong Bin who was uh, had lost both his hands to frostbite in a climbing accident. And myself uh, for the documentary. So we went to Africa for... Six weeks, uh, we went through Tanzania and um, Kenya and then up to uh, Kilimanjaro. And uh, so we filmed it. It was uh, an amazing bit of filming and uh, got to the summit. 
minus 35 degrees took uh, it, uh, the, the, it was 13 days to do the climb and we'd be climbing around 18 hours a day and filming and uh, then a quick sleep basically, everything organised and then off we'd go again. We had porters carrying our gear and I'm in a wheelchair and, and on my backside. And so I was going to ask about that, so forgive my ignorance, I've, I've obviously never climbed Kilimanjaro, so... What was when you say climb? What was that like for you? What we was it? Was it mainly in your wheelchair or no? No, no, mainly on my hands and my backside. Um, Kilimanjaro is the fifth highest mountain in the world. It's five thousand eight hundred and ninety-five yeah. meters high, and uh, it's a climbing mountain. It's a trekking mountain, so most people have the opportunity to do it. In fact, Helen Clark did it many right. years ago. That okay. was um, one of the things yeah. that she did. And um, yeah, yeah, so uh, I didn't know what I was in for. It was just. Uh, say yes and work out how you're going to do it later. Yep. And um, look, as I say, it was, it was a huge experience. I'd climbed the mount probably 20 times in my younger days on my backside, my hands on my backside with all my friends. And, you know, we were 17, 18 years old and um, I'd be on my backside and climb to the top of the mountain. The goal was we used to take a can of a uh, dozen cans of beer up with us. But by the time I got there, they'd drunk all the beer. And so I got no reward and um, had to get back down again. <laughs> so it was a whole day trip, really, <laughs> to get up the mount. But I yeah. and I wore out about, you know, 20 pairs of pants every time I went up there. I wore out yeah, a pair yeah, of pants yeah. and yeah. gloves and things like that. Yeah. So uh, we were a bit better prepared for Kilimanjaro, but it wasn't a, an unknown thing for me, yeah. uh, obviously just climbing a lot further. Yeah. So there was a fair bit of uh, a wheelchair stuff where we made a bit of a rickshaw out of the front with some poles and um, – for the documentary, Hong Bin actually run a sling over his shoulder and was able to to drag the wheelchair and I'd be pushing and Su Yong was pushing behind yeah. uh, for most of the, of, of the filming on, on the trekking parts. But there yeah. were a lot that I had to get out, probably about 70, 80% of it, I was actually out in my hands on my backside. Right. And, and how much of a challenge was that for you? Oh, amazing. Oh, absolutely. There are times I thought, what the heck am I doing here? You know, It's minus 20 degrees. It's snowing, it's cold, it's like... And from Kibo Hut, which is at 5,000 metres, it's the last hut before the summit, it took me 21 hours so um, to get to the summit from there. And so we went through a whole um, night and day situation, basically. And by the time I'd got there, uh, well, I was about three-quarters of the way there and the others had got to the top and filmed... And we're on their way back down, and they wanted me to stop. And uh, I said no. I said I've come this far. So they, the the TV crew, Su Yong Hong Bin, all went back down, and just uh, one porter and a guide stayed with me, and we carried on to the top. And I got there at uh, eleven o'clock at night. Yeah, I was going to ask you: Did you ever have any thoughts of? Quitting, but I, I kind of knew the answer, but you've just answered it there by having an out. Well, in reality, giving up wasn't an option um, for, because of who I am. Yeah. I have to be honest and say that that thought came through my mind several times, yeah. and especially when the others, there was no point. There was no point. There was no filming. They'd done all the filming. It was all done. Yeah. There, there was, whether I got there or not, Nobody know. Nobody would care. 
which I suppose proves why you were doing it in the first place, not just because someone asked, not just because they were filming it. Oh, yeah. But it it's was an another, opportunity. It was another challenge for you, another oh, chapter in the book. People have said to me, would I, have any, would I do it again? I said, heck no. No, never, I'd never do that again. Mm. But I did it and I survived, and that was the most important thing of all. If it was like, if it was in a life-threatening situation, I would obviously be thinking. You know, you hear of these guys climbing um, uh, Mount Everest, and you know the, the, the New Zealanders that have had their issues climbing Everest, and you know they're life-threatening situations. Mm. Kilimanjaro is an achievable goal. It, it wasn't unachievable. It was just going to take time, and a, an extreme amount of effort. And I was prepared to do both. So I wasn't in a life-threatening situation. Um, altitude sickness is a is a real thing, and I was fortunate enough that I didn't get altitude sickness. But yeah, there's only three of us that know that we were actually actually there. The three who need to know, right? It's the most yeah. important. Yeah. yeah. So what's what's next, Tony? What's you touched on a few things before we started recording. Um, but what's what's next for you in the way of challenges? You, you said you're going to be here for a long time yet, <laughs> and that means there's going to be a lot more stuff that's added to the list of achievements, right? Is there anything? To anything? be honest, right now, I'd I'd like the opportunity to share more of my story. I think there's there's more things, more opportunity out there. People need to hear stories, you know, like what you're doing now is you're creating an environment where people can hear other stories, be inspired by the achievements of, of others. I'm inspired by the achievements of others. As I said earlier, you know, I saw the world's movie The World's Fastest Indian 27 times. It was the only movie that Air New Zealand had for about a year, I think. And one of those days I thought, I could do that. I could do that. So I have a drag car, a drag racing car that I built, and I went to Bonneville in 2008. Two hundred miles an hour, you know, and I just, that was just because I saw the movie, mm. the, the Jamaican bobsled team. You know, yeah. we've all seen that that movie, Cool Runnings. I probably saw that twenty times as well, and it's the same thing. So I've now driven the two man bobsled down the Olympic course. Right at the moment, it's not an opportunity to to do that. I'm sixty four years old. I'm probably starting to run out of time to have that ability to do that. But if I got the opportunity, I'd be there with bells on. So when you, when you say that opportunity is not there, there yet, just for the... Because it's not a Paralympic sport yet. Right. Not a winter Paralympic sport yet. Yeah. So I can go over and, and they are running another uh, a group there later this year, um, around November, December in Park City, Utah. Where, where I'm, so I've done 26 runs down the course at the moment. Right. Absolutely amazing. Amazing experience. Mm. The body, you get over 5.2 Gs. Of, of pressure on the body when you're going down the, the um, yeah, amazing experience, amazing experience. Yeah, when you, when, you talk, when you talk about things like that and you just said you're 64 and, you know, we talked about your upper body strength and, you know, what's, what's your health been like over, over the years and what, what's it like now? Is, is, is carrying yourself around on your hands had any wear and tear issues? Have there been issues oh, yeah. for you? Oh, my shoulders are headed. I'm supposed to have had surgery on my shoulders about 10 years ago. But I, it means probably up, upwards of a year of recuperation, and then I only do one shoulder at a time. 
So that means I'll be out of action for a couple of years and I wouldn't be able to carry weight on them. And I'm not prepared to do that. Like my shoulders give me pain, but I, I, I'll live through the pain. They reckon that they're not going to get any worse. Pain's not going to get any, any worse than it is now. Um, so I, I don't take uh, anti-inflammatories or anything like that. I'm, I'm not a great believer in, in drugs. So I just put up with it. It's, if, and as I say, if it's the worst that's happening in my life, it's not a bad deal, is it? Is that is that part of uh, – I, I, I relate to that. I mean, if, if I've uh, a back injury in the past and I, I'm not – I'm not a big fan of pain relief because I know you've talked about you know knowing your limits and, and your boundaries and stuff like that. Is that so that you you can feel and know what you're trying to manage it? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I manage your limitations. I manage a lot more. A year just over a year ago now, I had a heart attack. It was um, I don't know whether it's a good ones or bad ones, but obviously it was a good one because I survived it. And it was just that that little um, call to say, hey. You know, maybe we need to do things a little bit differently. Yeah. You, you need to change the way that you do things. And so I've taken note of that and I've changed um, my lifestyle to some some extent. And uh, we all, I'm very fortunate that I was, it was a survivable one. And I'm now, you know, so life, the older that you get, the, the, the way life treats you a little bit differently. And you've got to be a, look, I gave my body heck when I was young. You know, I did some things, especially with my shoulders and arms, that I should never have done. Like lifting 220 kilos in a, in a bench press wow. was what I used to bench press, you know. Yeah. That's crazy, yeah. right? And, and, and you pay for it in later life, yeah. especially in something that you, you use to get around. Mm. You, it's what you do. Mm. Um, and even now, I, I, I sort of start to think a little bit differently about whether I should do something this way or this way mm. or, um, or, or even sometimes ask for help. That, that's been a, a big thing for me in, in recent times is, is asking for a bit of help rather than trying to just do everything yourself. So, and it's, you know, when I talk about my shoulders, for example, in the surgery, that's two year, that'll be two years out of my life. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if I've only got, say, 15 left and I take two more out of it because of my shoulders and things, you know, it doesn't it doesn't the maths don't work for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just want to pick up on what you said. Um, sorry for jumping all over it, but you said there about um, asking for help. Is that something that you've not been that good at in the past? No, 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 not not at all. Uh, I've been, you know, called arrogant and stubborn and things like that. And um, and later in life, you, you just start to think that you maybe just do need a bit of help with things. You know, it's an old saying, it takes me all day to do what I used to do all day. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, I suppose what it says is that you're open to change and open to learning. And oh, so I've, I've, I always have been. Yeah. I've always, because that's a challenge, isn't it? Mm. You know, doing something differently than, than what you've always, you know, it's an old saying, isn't it? If I do what I've always done, I'll get what I've always got. Yeah, absolutely. And there are lots of those, those one-liners that are out there, which I think are great. They're the good, they're the good philosophies of life, yeah. and I've lived by so many of them. Yeah. What's your favourite? Have you got one? Um, oh, the reason I ask is because we actually uh, we we on social media we're putting those out. Like what I, what I call you know quotes, or quote, yeah. quotes from guests or quotes from you know well known famous quotes. But there are things that I think that 
you know, you can get some that are quite lengthy, but the, the shorter ones are, are best because they're straight to the point. But there's the stuff you can learn from people that have just said something quite simplistic, but it cuts to the chase. My simple one is if it's to be, it's up to me. Right. It really is. And we've all heard it before. And I think that the buck stops here. Now, if we're really getting down to it, I think that we're in a world where it's too easy to blame other people for the challenges that we face in our lives. We are. We abdicate responsibility to so many others in today's world. You know, I don't want to offend anybody, but we're, in, we, we, we're really softening up. When we're not gritting our teeth. And if it's too, it's okay to not succeed. It's okay to not reach a goal. You know, there's no school certificate anymore. You know, we used to have school cert. What do they do? They took it away. So now we've got some other unit standards. There might be someone that says, well, it's the best thing that we ever did. But I knew what my, I knew what 50% was as a pass rate. I knew what 70% was as a pass rate. You know what I mean? And I always stride because you had a number that you worked to. I, I, I struggle with the world today where we, we settle for mediocrity. Mm-hmm. It's okay to not exceed or excel or be the best. And I struggle with that. I'm not saying it's wrong. What do you think the consequences of that might be in the longer term? I, I, I'm one of these people. I always sort of like to look at cause and effect. And what's what are we doing today? That's actually we're going to look back on in a few years' time, five years' time, or whatever, and I look back and say, actually, we, we might have got that wrong, or actually, if we'd have done something different, we'd be getting a different outcome now. It's very easy. We, we call it the benefit of hindsight, right? But I'm, I'm one of these. I like to have a little bit of foresight if I can. I, and I personally worry about some of the things that are. That we're dealing with on a globally at the minute, and the way that we're going about them, I'm not so sure it's the best way of going about them for the long term. So I'm interested in your thoughts about what you think the consequences of what you've just described might be. Um, I th- I just think that we're settling for mediocrity in 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 the, the world. That we should be living in a world of people pushing boundaries and you know you talked a little bit earlier about health and safety and I have the utmost respect for for health and safety yet we are doing things today and most of them are knee-jerk reactions to to a problem that was never a problem Um, yet we've created problems we've actually created a whole industry absolutely right we've we've as, as a business owner, we've created compliancing fees and things that we never used to have. Mm-hmm. And now we've got costs increasing. So now people can't afford to do certain things because the costs have increased so much. So that takes away many of the desires that we have because you just physically can't afford or you can't do it because of some restriction. You know, you talked about, um, you know, the guy in the tree. You know, but as I said, I'm the guy in the tree. And I'm prepared for the consequences should I fall from that tree. Mm. I will take 
every care because I don't want to fall. But the reality is that there's a chance that I may. So do we do away, cut the tree down and do away with the tree so that there is no opportunity for that to happen? Or do we just learn how to climb better so or we do, don't fall? Or do we, do we learn how to plan better? Yeah. As I say, it is a race car driver. You know, if I follow the guy in front of me, I'm going to always be second. Mm. And I, I, I want to be a leader. Mm. I want to be that guy that 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 leads. If, if I end up second, that's okay. I'm not saying it's not okay to be second, mm. but I'm still the one that wants to push it to the front to be that leader. Mm. Yep. And I'm going to crash. I'm going to hit the wall. Yep. But do I stop doing it because there's that possibility? Or do I take every requirement, like put a helmet on, make sure I've got my head and neck restraint on, I've got fireproof gloves, I've got a fire extinguisher. Mm. You know, I've got, I've prepared, I've done everything that I can. But there was always the unknown. Climbing the tree and the, and the branch breaks. Mm. Did we know that the branch was going to break? Mm. You know? Yep. And, and so I just think so often that we're taking away so many elements that that allow us to push the boundary. Yep. Yep. I agree. Tony, I'm conscious of the time and how long I've kept it. I could talk to you forever probably, you know, for a long time anyway and never get um, tired of your stories. But I've, I've got a couple of just maybe two more questions. Sure. Um, words to the effect of, you know, people say words to the effect of, we are, you know, a reflective of the, the five closest people that we associate with or we hang around. You know, that's the influence that we have on each other. And so, you know, depending on who we hang around with, you know, can that that can influence who we become. Yeah. Who who's been the most influence influential people in your life? Well, obviously, my parents. You know, I would have to say that is number one. Um. And my, both my parents have passed and uh, very, very tough. And uh, How long ago was that, can I ask? Uh, probably two years now. Two years for my dad and three years for my mum. Okay. And I still talk to him every now and again, mm. you know, uh, especially my mum. Yeah. Dad was a mad man of many, uh, of a few words, sorry. But, um, you know, he was a, a lead by example and uh, just gone on and did things no matter what, what the issue was. Another one's my granddad. My granddad was an amazing man. He went through World War II. And my granddad had a, a stutter, very, very bad stutter. And it, one of the things I got from him is I think that little bit of tenacity. Whenever he, he's, he would talk, it got quite bad. And if he was really focused about something, he'd get quite bad. Mm. And I used to try and finish the sentences for him. And he hated it, <laughs> absolutely hated it. And he was getting it out come hell or high water. And he would just carry on. <laughs> and he scolded me a few times about, about cutting him short. You know? yeah. But, you know, and he was a, that jack of all trades, master of none guy, had a go at anything and uh, learned a lot, a lot from him. Um, people around me, you know, uh, obviously, you know, you share your life with your family. And uh, they've been very inspirational to me as well. Mm. My daughter, Danny, 
example, as I said, just that simple thing of, yeah. you know, being her own person, yeah. being Danny Christensen, not Tony Christensen's daughter. Yeah. Um, my oldest girl, Nikki, um, she's got um, three kids, moved to Australia and everything like that because she wanted a better life. Mm. You know, she wanted to do something a little bit differently mm. um, and just been great, been a great mum and all that stuff because that's what you can ask for people. Mm. So... Right throughout my life, is, and, I, and I've been, and I like to think that I've been a part of that influence. They're good people because they are. Uh, th hopefully, they've had some of my influence on that. Yeah, absolutely. We influence you know? each other, right? And yeah, so, yeah. It's not just a one-way yeah. transaction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and and so it's the pieces, as you say, the people closest to you. And I've got some extraordinary, some amazing friends, mm. some amazing people. That, um, that I went to school with, mm. um, they're still contact in contact with today. Mm. Uh, and I see some of the things that they've done and I just think, absolutely amazing. You know? yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm very, you know, and I use the word fortunate, I'm not lucky. You know, luck's winning in lotto, but you still got to go and buy a ticket first. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very fortunate. I have, I've, I have an extraordinary life. Um, but I like to think it's because I choose it to be that way. So, nice segue, I think, into the, the last question I've got um, that, that you, you choose and that you've, you've got a great life and you choose to have that. What advice would you give? What piece of wisdom would you impart to anyone facing any life-changing difficulties? And I, and I was going because I was going to frame it along the lines of you know anyone who's been through what you've been through, but I, I think you know you've touched on this that we've all got our challenges and they're all significant to us because we've not experienced anything different, so therefore it's it's you know it's massive to us. But if there's a life changing experience that um, I mean it's happening to people all all day every day, right? What's one piece of advice or wisdom that you would impart that would help them create a, a great life that you've experienced and a story worth retelling? <laughs> An extremely interesting question. I, I really would think it's believe in yourself. I think it starts here. It starts with you. Mm. Life starts with you. It doesn't start with your parents. It doesn't. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, you're, you're born with your parents and things. But you are the one that creates your, your, your story. You know, we, we, we're, we're brought up and our parents give us their values because that's how we learn, yeah. or the, the people around us. We learn those values from other people. Then I think we get to a time in our life where we create our own values whether it be when you expand your family, whether, you know, it be business or, you know, you could be a ruthless businessman, you could be uh, an easy businessman. You, you know what I mean? One yeah. could make a lot of money, one might not make as much. You make all of those choices of how your life goes. And if it's not working for you, try and realise it early and change. So many of us don't want to change. We don't want to change direction. Life's... Not easy. The theory of life is, is, is easy. We're born, we live, we die. 
It's the living part that actually complicates everything. And we tend to be the ones that complicate it. So believe in yourself. Believe that you, life's a series of paths. You'll go in this direction, then you'll come to a fork in the road, and you go this way or the other. Who's to say what's right? You've, but make a choice. Don't sit on the fence. Yeah. Don't wait for things to go bad before you go, oh, should have done something about that. Make a choice and always move forward, right? Look back to learn. Never look back to regret. Yeah. And I do think that a lot of people will look back. They live their life in regret. Mm. I have some regrets in my life, but I don't dwell on them. I've learned from those those mistakes, yeah. right? And always move forward, always look forward. But it starts with you and it starts about believing in yourself. Believe that success is going to come to you. Right? Don't settle for mediocrity. Try and always stretch yourself, push yourself. Right? And the harder something is, the more I actually want to do it, can you believe it? I can. But I, that, that's the type of person I am. Yeah. yeah. Not everybody's like me. And no. and we know that. Yeah. That's just the way I am. Make make things that suit you. Mm. It's your life. It's not my life. Yeah. It's your life. Live it to the best that you can. Yeah. You know, I, my my parents, I miss them so much. I really, really do. Because I wouldn't be the person I am today without them. But I'm sure that they would be proud. Yeah. That's all I ever want. Yeah. And they, you know, thankfully, I suppose they've lived long enough to see what you've oh, achieved. Yeah. yeah. And that, you know, whoever it was that told your mum that you might not live beyond <laughs> 20, I mean, well... You know, look at you now, and they yeah. they got to see that, which is fantastic. Yeah. Tony, I I, I want to thank you so much for um, taking so much of your time out today to come and talk to me and share your story with us. Um, you're a, a truly inspirational person. Um, I'm not at all surprised that you've made a living out of going and speaking and talking to people and telling your story. Uh, it's uh, it's an amazing story. Um, you are, um, and this is a compliment, an ordinary guy, as you yeah. described earlier on, but you've lived an extraordinary life and only because you wanted to do by choice. Yeah. And so I thank you for coming in and sharing that with us. Um, I really do appreciate it. Thank you. That's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. As a child with ocean eyes, I smiled at a world existing just for me. Without boxes, borders, or boundaries, I built dreams. Those are the opening lyrics of a song called Boxes by Charlie Winston. The lyrics of this song I found to be quite powerful. They meant something to me a few years ago when I needed them. Maybe look it up on Spotify. Why am I talking about this now? Well, as you will hopefully know by now, if you've seen other episodes, 
This segment of the podcast is all about wisdom worth sharing. At the end of every show, I review the videos and look back as part of the editing process and discover some of the gems that came out during the conversations. And I summarize them here. And as I've reviewed Tony Christensen's Life's Work interview, I was reminded of this song. Clearly, Tony is a man who has not allowed himself to be boxed by anyone. He didn't even want artificial legs to look normal. What's normal, he said. He showed us that nothing can hold us down, keep us back or box us if we don't let it. It's all about attitude. And he certainly taught us that with the right attitude, we can choose to live an extraordinary life, just as he's done. Tony said that being so young when his accident happened, he hadn't had a life full of experiences and memories that had suddenly been taken away from him. It was almost like he didn't know any different. He was too young and inexperienced to box himself, which could have resulted in a far different life to the one he's had. Instead of focusing on his ability to do any of 10,000 things before the accident, he realized that he could still do 8,000. And then he chose to focus on the 500 that would create an amazing life. When the nine-year-old Tony arrived at the hospital, having been run over by a train, he apologized to his mum, who was obviously and understandably distraught. He said, sorry mum, but I'll be okay. And he was. He didn't take his own life in his teen years, as some, medical, some in the medical field had suspected he would. Far from it. In fact, Tony said those were the cards he'd been dealt and that he was very fortunate from that day forward. Wow, how many of us would see things that way? Tony did, and consequently, he has and continues to live a life so full of adventure, fun and achievement that most of us would be amazed no matter who had achieved them. Never mind an ordinary guy with no legs. Throughout the interview, Tony provided several insights and reminders to us all that we should not allow ourselves to be boxed, labelled or judged by others. Their opinions are just that, theirs, not ours. Whatever or whoever we are, we choose who we should be and we shouldn't let those opinions of our idiosyncrasies and quirks, the things that make us real and individual, shape what we think and feel and believe about ourselves. Importantly, Tony hasn't just done the things that would prove to others that he can, although he admitted there was some element of that on occasion, as there is for all of us. But he chooses to do the things that he loves, that he's passionate about. To quote Tony, if you don't enjoy it, don't do it. There's much to be said for that in all aspects of life, and in particular, because it's such a big component of our lives, we should think about that relative to our work. What we choose to do in life should be enjoyable for us. It doesn't always seem possible to do, but that's maybe because, as Tony said, we're too scared to actually close a door for ourselves, even though several doors may then open for us. As he said, adversity or challenging in our life makes us dig deep and brings out the best of us. But his question was, why do we wait? I think it's a comfort zone thing. And maybe we should all look for opportunities, actively seek them out, 
to stretch ourselves beyond our current limiting beliefs. Because that's what we're, we're put here to do. Stretch, grow, develop, and enhance our own life and those around us. The title of this episode is another quote from Tony. If it's to be, it's up to me. Tony is an ordinary guy living an extraordinary life. What will you take away from his story that may help you create or enhance your own extraordinary life, work and legacy? I hope there are many things that you've found valuable in this interview. I know I have. Use them, share them with others. As I always say, sharing is like teaching and teaching helps us retain what we've learned and commit to change. I hope you are happy, safe and successful in all that you do and please remember, live a life that's a story worth retelling. I'm Steve Worsley, and I look forward to seeing you again next time on Life's Work, the podcast all about wisdom worth sharing.